God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ d dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3, 11 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it. Well, welcome to Midtown Church. As Cassie mentioned, my name is Alex. Uh, if we haven't met, that's me. A uh, couple things. I hope to uh, hang out with you at the parlor. If you're new, this is a great way to figure out how weird we are. Like, you, you figure out how weird a community is based on what they're eating and their eating habits. So, you're invited just to see uh, what we go for uh, at the parlor. So, join us. Uh, also, something Cassie didn't mention is we're trying to put together a kickball team. So, if you are interested, uh, go over to our website and there's a link to sign up. It's a little steep. It's $75, but it includes uh, six or seven games and a t-shirt. Uh, and refs, because we all know we need refs between us. So we'd love to have you play. Um, I have no, like, if we go zero and six, that's fine in my book. So if we get one win, that's even better. Uh, so join us for kickball. Uh, a lot of this summer is about us hanging out together. Uh, it's a lot about us just being the community of God in Kansas City and enjoying one another's company. So we hope to enjoy uh, your company either through, through kickball or through hanging out at the parlor or through any of our other events. Uh, happy Memorial Day. Happy start to the summer. It is officially summer, and all the teachers said amen. Uh, school's out. School's out. Uh, scream and shout. Uh, we're moving into the summer, so we're excited to uh, just be with you in the summer in Kansas City. Well, we are going to continue our series through Colossians. So if you've got your, your Bible, you've got your phone, go over to Colossians chapter 3. As we've been mentioning each week, we want to give you kind of a three-point summary on how to understand the book of Colossians. Uh, first, that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a really young church. The Apostle Paul did not plant this church, but his friend did, and so Paul is writing as a spiritual father to this community. And he writes and writes this beautiful, um, compelling letter about Christ, and in particular, that Christ has begun a new kingdom, that in his life, death, and resurrection, and, and ascension, he has made it possible to be a new type of people. And then third, that spiritual maturity is learning to live in alignment with that kingdom. And spiritual maturity kind of sits at the center of this book. 
Paul spends an extensive amount of time describing who Christ is and how we can step into life in Christ, life with Christ. And on that note of spiritual maturity, I've come to a conclusion. I've come to believe something about spiritual maturity. I am becoming more and more convinced that this thing standing between me, who I am now, and who I want to be in Christ is my own impulse to hide. My own impulse to hide from life in community, life together. This is an impulse that we all have. It's an impulse, in fact, that is as old as sin itself. If you're familiar with the Genesis story, you know that in Genesis 3, the first humans, called Adam and Eve, believed the lie that they could be like God, deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. And the text reads that as soon as the deed was done, as they took of the forbidden fruit, their eyes were opened and they were filled with shame by their nakedness. And so they hid and or they ran and hid from God. And then the author of Genesis tells us that God came into the garden and he asks a question that he knew the answer to. He asks, where are you? And in Genesis 3, we read Adam's response. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree for which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Adam's reply, I heard your sound and so I hid. God says, how did you know? He said, the woman you gave, the woman you gave to me, she gave it to me. For hiding from community looks an awful, light, an awful lot like withdrawal or defensiveness. Remember Adam's first response. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam and Eve's response to the betrayal of God was to hide, was to create distance from themselves. And if I'm honest, I do this all the time. Fearful that I will be found out, Fearful that my imperfections will be noticed. Fearful that my insecurities will be pointed out or exposed. We hide from one another. We make excuses. We wear masks. We curate a vision, a version of ourselves that hide and kind of disguise the defects of our personality. The whole time suffering in isolation. We want community so desperately but we don't want the vulnerability. Hiding from community oftentimes looks like withdrawal. Or if we don't withdraw, we become defensive. Adam's retort to God, well, it was the woman whom you gave me. Look at the blame, like, differential. He puts the blame back on God. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, 
and I ate. A failed friendship can't be my fault. A conflict in the church can't be my responsibility. Their perspective has to be wrong because if they're right, well, I don't want to think about if they are right. We've all become masters at shifting blame from ourselves or defending our own actions, all in order to avoid accepting that I may have to change. We learn to defend ourselves from an early age because we learn if we're wrong, that means we probably need to make a change. We've all developed elaborate routines to hide ourselves from God and to hide ourselves from one another. But in our hiding, we fail to grow. In our hiding, we fail to bring our brokenness into the light and allow for the possibility of something better to come as a result. And I think this is why Paul makes a case for the church community in Colossians 3. So here is my summary of Paul's thesis in our chapter today. I think, remember, this whole book is about maturity. So here's what I think Paul is saying. I think he's saying that we will take on the likeness of Christ when we are in a community of strangers committed to one another under the guidance of the Prince of Peace. And this thesis will operate as a roadmap, if you will, through our passage, helping us to understand what will happen if we step into community. When we step into the light, when we step away from our impulse to hide, and we step into life together. I don't think I have to make a case for a desire to live life together. We all deeply ache for relationships. We all deeply ache for community. We all deeply ache for friendships. I don't have to make a case for it. The case I have to make is that In this community, in the church community, we will learn to be more like Christ. Let's look at the text. In verse 10, Paul writes this. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave free, but Christ is all and is all. Paul is deliberate with the list he makes and the boundary markers he chooses to call out. For the Jews, circumcision was a great source of pride and a source of mockery for other nations looking at the Jews. Barbarians was a disparaging title used by the Greeks for anyone who did not speak their language. The Scythians, this is from a little-known area in northern Asia, were an extreme example of barbarians and were specifically known for their pension to violence and brutality. And then the distinction between slave and free ran through all of the ancient world in the same way economic status cuts through our culture today. As N.T. Wright puts it, the ancient world, just like the modern was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, and arrogance, so ingrained as to be thought natural and normal. From early in life, we all learn what tables we can sit at. 
We quickly learn what cliques we belong to and where we stand in the social order. No one ever had to tell me I belonged to the nerds. I just knew it. It's a form of social Darwinism that creates a complex caste system in our minds. Separating the haves from the have-nots, the ins and the outs, the right from the left. We operate from mental maps that tell us how the world should work. And we work to defend our understanding that we've developed. This is how life must be. And in many ways, I think this is confirmation bias, which is the habit of searching out, favoring, or recalling information that supports our pre-existing beliefs. Most of our life is working through confirmation bias. We find the news source that supports our thoughts. We follow the feeds that continue to feed our understanding of the world. We create boundaries around ourselves that keep the narrative the same. But Paul's inclusive list offers a subversive critique of all of that. It offers a critique of confirmation bias because he says Christ is all and in all. Christ cannot be amongst the Jews because that would, would challenge everything I understand about the religious rituals and the religious order of the day. Christ can't be amongst the barbarians because that would challenge my sense of cultural superiority. Christ can't be amongst the Scythians because that would challenge my sense of moral superiority. Fill in the blank with the group, the population that you hold a bias to. You might not have admitted it yet, but fill in the blank with the population that you hold a bias against. Spiritual growth is catalyzed by encounters with others, with strangers, people whose stories, experiences, and perspectives challenge our own. Christ is all and in all. We need encounters with strangers who think differently. We need people in our lives who do not look like us, who do not talk like us, who do not think like us, to challenge our own narrow understanding of the world and who Christ is. We need encounters with strangers. We need a community of people who think differently than us to challenge us to understand better who Christ is. Now, this is not to say that everyone has a perspective worth adopting. That is not what I'm saying. I have met some of you, and your perspectives on the Marvel Cinematic Universe are not good. Not everybody has a perspective worth adopting, but we, they all have a perspective worth hearing. Their stories and their, their experiences add to our own treasure trove of experiences. And you may go, I don't see the world how you see it, but I can definitely understand how Christ is at work in your life. Without the perspective of others, Jesus looks, sounds, acts, and thinks an awful lot like myself. This is the problem with the, the vocabulary and kind of the phrase that's thrown around, I'm good with Jesus, but I don't like the church. From that perspective, all of your assumptions about who Jesus is will just never develop any further. To be in isolation is really to not understand who Jesus is. This is the tension with I'm good with Jesus, 
but I don't like the church. We never grow beyond our own understandings. In 2015, I remember seeing the news about another mass shooting. In Charlotte, a man walks in and murders in cold blood nine black parishioners of a church in Charlotte. And I remember reading about this, and I remember seeing it on the news, and I was struck by a profound sense of numbness. You ever have that moment where you see something so incredibly tragic, but you cannot, like there's nothing there. At that time, there was nothing for me to draw on. I I just didn't feel anything. And for me, that was a warning sign. That was a warning sign that I need to change perspectives. And so I met up with my friend Benjamin, a, a black man from Louisiana who moved to Kansas City, who I have a great friendship with. We sat at Starbucks for hours as he shared his encounters with the evils of racism and how the way this moment happened impacted him so deeply. It wasn't a disconnected event in another state. It was very, very personal. We sat at this Starbucks until they had to ask us to leave because I just, I was struck by this way of his encounters with the world that was so vastly different from my own. And then it was in hearing his perspective that I gained a whole new understanding of the suffering of Jesus. It's in reading the stories from 18th and 19th century Americans, black Americans, that I understand a little bit better what it means that our brown-skinned Messiah was lynched after a mock trial. It was in hearing exposing myself to the stories of others that I gained a little bit more of a perspective on who Jesus was. As Richard Foster describes it, if we are a people rich in social relationships, we are rich indeed. Whenever we develop significant friendships with those who are not like us culturally, we become broader and wiser persons. May it be so. May we develop a rich culture of friendship in this church that we are constantly rubbing up against perspective and cultures that are different than our own. And in doing so, may we look more and more like Jesus. This is Paul's vision of the church, a community of strangers committed to one another. In verse 12, Paul continues, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We must be a community committed to one another. If you've ever been around people who do not think, act, or behave like you, you'll understand why verses 12 through 14 are necessary. Paul anticipates, you ready for it, conflict. He anticipates that when two people think very differently, there will be a little bit of rub in the relationship. He assumes that there will be hurt. He assumes there will be pettiness. He assumes that there will be sin. And he assumes that humans will act like humans. And in doing so, he gives us a strategy to deal with that conflict. 
Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness and patience. Bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive them as the Lord has forgiven you. And he goes on to summarize all these virtues. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This list of virtues is little more than a description of what love looks like in community. And if I'm reading Paul and Jesus, for that matter, correctly, his definition of love is this. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is exactly what I want if I'm struggling. And it is the exact opposite of what I want to do when I'm doing well. Like, I want someone to step to, like, to be with me in humility and meekness. I want someone to bear with me when I am suffering. But when someone else is suffering, I'm like, get, come on, get your stuff together. Like, don't be dramatic. I think it was uh, President Obama was sharing about the campaign trail. And he said, I only had one rule. Which don't be dramatic. Like, don't bring drama into my office. Don't be dramatic. And I feel that on such a deep level. I've heard church planters say, I don't, I don't care about anything other than I don't want drama. Like, I don't want drama in my life. And while that sounds great, and we're all like, yes, that sounds wonderful, that is not the way of Jesus. If Jesus was adverse to drama, Peter would not have made the cut. If Jesus was anti-drama, 12 guys who were probably in their late teens would not be the crew to roll with. Jesus is not anti-drama. And we kind of have to, in our following of him, just have to simply embrace that drama will come. And in the short time we've been pastoring, I've discovered that amongst community, like, terrible sin is typically not the main problem. Like, I, I haven't met too many people who are like, yeah, I got this person in my microchurch. They sacrifice a goat to Satan on a regular basis. If you do that, like, we need to talk. <laughs> most, of the, most of the time, the problem is not overt, gross sin. It's just immaturity. Most of the time, the tensions amongst the people in the church is just immaturity. Man, they always hog the conversation and they never listen to the perspective of others. Man, they just cannot seem to show up on time or to let us know they're going to show up to our house. They're always with a different person every week. It's like the new drama of who they're dating. Like these aren't issues of gross. These are just issues of immaturity. And those are the things we don't want to have conversations about. Those are the things where we're like, ah, it's, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. But I think this text is inviting us to, in love, in humility, in meekness, engage in those conversations. It would be really great if we as a church could be drama-free. But the reality is that if we are doing what we are called to do here in the city, we will not be drama-free. We must be a church committed to one another. Not as we wish everyone was, but as they actually are. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, the person who loves their dream of community 
will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Love must be expressed as people actually are, not as we wish they were. This means putting up with their brokenness and their immaturity, their pettiness, their over-talkativeness, their under-talkativeness. It means putting up with the immaturity of people. Paul goes on to write, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul calls the church to be a community of strangers, committed to one another under the guidance of the Prince of Peace. Paul suggests that as a community of strangers, with vastly different values, thoughts, perspectives, and behaviors. Is not simply the absence of conflict, but it is life that is thriving and flourishing. So his definition of peace is not simply the absence of conflict. He's not like, okay, peace resides if everybody is just like not acknowledging what's really going on. That's not peace. The peace that Paul is describing is one of flourishing, one in which healthy relationships are taking place and healthy conversations are being had. And now this peace is possible because we have a ruler in mind. Paul uses a word we translate as rule that has the connotation of an umpire or an arbitrator. So to follow the sports metaphor, no matter what happens on the field of play, the umpire has the final word. Jaden's an ump on the weekends. Who has the final word? He does. Jaden has the final word. So in the church community, if Paul is suggesting that Christ is the umpire, Christ has the final word. And if we, again, going down the sports metaphor, if, Christ, if it's the same with Christ, his field of play is all of creation. And so we as his people should be committed to his rule, wholly and completely. Remember from the beginning of chapter three, Justin spoke on this a couple weeks ago, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is a not-so-subtle callback to the conclusions of Mark, Luke, John, and the introduction of Acts. Uh, Jordan, if you want to throw that up. These are uh, four instances explicitly mentioning Jesus was here, and now he's not. He was amongst the disciples, and then something happened. Oftentimes, we picture him as like Superman, like slowly going up as if heaven is like just above the clouds. I don't really think that's how it went. But we can pretend. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. This event is known as the ascension. And I bring it up because this past Thursday in the church calendar is the day we mark as the day Jesus 
ascended to the right hand of God. And I think this is an important reminder for us as the church community because inevitably when we forget that Jesus is at the right hand of God, well, Jesus becomes our at our right hand. If Jesus isn't at the right hand of God, we tend to make the mistake of thinking that our songs, our talks, our way of doing ministry, our way of doing life is the way to do life. But if Jesus is at the right hand, then I have someone who I have to look to, someone who I have to check with, someone who has the final rule. In a church culture in which uh, abuse and power dynamics are greatly at play, I think we need to pick up again the events of the ascension, that Jesus is not a weapon to be used against church people, that you as the congregation should be able to, to talk about Jesus and to question Cassie and I because we are not him and he is not ours to use as a sledgehammer. He is at the right hand of God. To be the church that Paul describes means we collectively and individually bend our wills to the one who is at the right hand of the Father. As Dallas Willard puts it, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and the most glorious inhabitant. When we are guided by the Prince of Peace, we will experience the life we so desperately desire and we'll do so together. Worship team, if you guys wanna join me back on stage. Paul's vision is a community of strangers committed to one another under the guidance of the Prince of Peace. Imagine briefly the impact that type of community would have on you. One that sees you with all your imperfections. One that sees you in your pettiness, in your hangriness, in your immaturity, but strives to love you, strives to be present with you. Just think about your dysfunctional family event real quick. It's fine. We all have dysfunctional family events. Think about your dysfunctional family event and put it in the context of what Paul calls us to do. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. How much transformation would take place if we would just inject that type of presence in our dysfunction? We, as the people of God, are the family of God. Imagine the type of community we could be if we took the words of Paul seriously. If we committed to being a group of strangers for one another, bearing with one another, loving one another, all got under the guidance of the Prince of Peace. The reality is that the way we have understood the church of the West for far too long has been something fairly incoherent to what the text says. 
that we commit to maybe an hour a week of a song and a talk. It's an invention of the West in the last couple hundred years. And it's a reflection of our impulse to hide more than it is a reflection of the way of Jesus. It's really easy to withdraw if you can blend into a crowd. It's really easy to remain defensiveness if you can just slip out right after worship. But if you have a community of people who know you, who really know you, who know your pettiness, who know your immaturity, who know the things you struggle with, well, that's, that's a whole different ballgame. We cannot follow Jesus alone. John Mark Comer writes, whether you define church as a Sunday gathering around a stage or a much smaller community around a table, what we call microchurch, or as I would recommend, a mixture of both, we cannot follow Jesus alone. Jesus did not have a disciple singular. He had disciples, plural. The call to follow Jesus was and still is a call to join his community of the way. If we will step into a community of strangers committed to loving one another under the guidance of the Prince of Peace, we will uncover what it means to look more and more like Jesus. Maybe I'm just crazy enough to believe that this vision of community that Jesus has in mind, it's far more costly, it is far more intimate, it is far messier, but it is far more beautiful than anything we've settled for. I believe that Christ is beckoning us as strangers to discover what it means to be family, that he is calling us to be for one another in all of our messiness, and that he desires a people that bend our will to his. I genuinely believe that life together is far better than life alone. And so here's our commitment for the week. This is the task of spiritual formation that we beckon you to. Commit to the community. Commit to the community in your life. In our community, in, in Midtown, this is microchurch. And if you don't wanna hear us talk about microchurch, we're probably not the place for you. We are committed to being in one another's living rooms, around kitchen tables, in coffee shops, week after week, month after month, year after year. We have no hope of growing further in Christ unless we commit to life together. And I do not think I would be pastoring this community well if I did not continue to beat the drum of microchurch. Get in community. Let us pastor you into a place where week in and week out, you share what is really going on in life. Not the, the coffee table talk of, hey, did you see Obi-Wan? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was terrible. You, then you don't talk to that person if they said it was terrible. Let's get beyond the coffee talk. Let's actually get into one another's lives and in the messiness and exposing the broken areas of our life. As Americans, individualism is the very air we breathe. And as humans, our impulse is to hide from community. It is to hide from one another. But let's take the step in courage and together to say, let's bring all of ourselves to community. 
This is not to, to say life together is easy. It is very difficult. It's far more difficult because we're forced to confront our own messiness. It's one thing to call out someone else's immaturity. It's another thing when they're like, hey, let's talk about your immaturity. But I desperately need you to call me out. I desperately need other people to speak truth in love about the way I am following Jesus. It requires the courage to be known and to drop our defensiveness. It requires us to be fully seen. When Cassie and I moved back to Kansas City, we started a micro church um, October of 2020, and it kind of developed into our uh, leadership team. And so every Thursday night, we come together and we talk about the business of church, but we always start with a check-in. We typically start with what, what went well in your week, uh, what didn't go well. And as a team who's been meeting for almost two years, we've walked through uh, the foster process. We've walked through terminal illness. We've walked through job transitions. We've walked through financial struggles. We've walked through some of us becoming first-time parents. We've walked through getting back into church after the racial reckoning of 2020. We've walked through the messiness of life. It has been difficult. It has had conversations that I wish didn't have to be had. But through it all, we've discovered that life together is far better than life alone. And it's genuinely the life we all long for. So this is the call to figure out in what ways have I been hiding from community? What, in what ways have I been so defensive that I haven't let someone in? Or in what ways have I managed my image that don't let me fully be known? And let's step into this summer committed to one another, committed to being the type of community Paul envisions. weekly podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.